Pardon the interruption. I just want to tell you about a video uh, that I want you to check out. It features the one and only Chuck Norris. You remember Chuck Norris? The man's in his 80s. And, uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken. Nonetheless, I care about my health. I want to live a long time. I want to, uh, want to be healthy. I don't always get as many fruits and vegetables and herbs that are supposed to increase my energy levels in my own diet. So I saw this video that Chuck Norris has made. He's kicking butt. He's uh, working out. He's staying active. He has heaps of energy left over for his grandkids and so on. And he says that he, he is achieving all this by making one single change. And he feels like he's in his 50s. Go to mymorningkick.com slash Josh and watch Chuck Norris's video right now. That's mymorningkick.com slash Josh, M-Y-M-O-R-N-I-N-G-K-I-C-K dot com slash Josh. G'day, humans. Welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. I'm going to try to do this, try to talk about something that is full of so many landmines it seems foolhardy to try and not get cancelled in doing so australia is about to go to the polls for a referendum to change the constitution to recognize first nations australians and to give first nations representatives a body a formal chamber that would be an advisory body that would give its opinion on issues that are relevant to Indigenous Australians and advise Parliament on uh, its opinions. This is a referendum to change the Constitution. These don't happen very often. It's a big deal. And a lot of people have a lot of questions. A lot of people have a lot of passionate beliefs. I want to do my best to, in a cool and calm way, go through some of the issues and tease them out as best I can, mindful of the fact that you won't agree with me on everything, and that of course some things that I say will be able to be taken out of context and could doom me. But when doing a call out for ask me anything questions, I got a bunch of questions about what my position is on the voice. One listener named James said, among other things, I have a family with three children, and quite frankly, I'm sick to death of hearing the same thing over and over at every concert, play, small gathering, anything. He's talking about welcomes to country, where white folk will tend to start every single gathering in Australia by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land. And James says the constant guilt trip is nauseating. He says, what about adding to the acknowledgement that no one is alive that had anything to do with the grievances? An acknowledgement of the truth, perhaps, he writes. An acknowledgement that no one ought to feel guilty at all. Perhaps we should just know that we shouldn't feel guilty, but if that is the case, then perhaps we shouldn't have to keep being reminded of these things. I don't know anyone who's ignorant of the truth of the claim that Indigenous Australians were here first, writes James, and for a very long time, before Captain Cook arrived, that is, after all, what Indigenous means. The thing is, he says, you can't say it's a good thing, because by all admissions... Things haven't improved for the cohort of Indigenous people that we're all still concerned about. In my opinion, if the voice gets through, then all the current dogma related to the Indigenous uh, issue should be scrapped. And it makes sense from the point of view that everyone who's advocating for the yes vote claims that this is just the start of real change, including yourself, he says of me. The thing is, if I want to have religion shoved in my face, I'd go to church. I don't respect people's beliefs. I respect people, unless they give me a reason not to. 
It gives me the shits because I agree with so much you have to say, Josh, but honestly, I don't think you give this topic the full zaps. And you're probably right, James. A lot of people are talking about how divisive this debate is. I'm seeing a tremendous amount of virtue signaling. Adam Hills, the Australian comedian who has a popular comedy show in the UK, tweeted the other day, I shouldn't be surprised by the amount of personal abuse being thrown at those of us who support the yes vote, but I am racist, ableist, body shaming, all of it, just for supporting a voice. Perhaps it's happening on both sides. It's not going to stop me, though. Oh, the courage. Oh, the courage, Adam. The sheer bravery. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, a friend of mine was talking to me and making the point that he hasn't seen any no posters. You drive around the inner west of Sydney and every block has houses festooned with yes posters, yes banners, yes flyers, yes flags. You don't see the no's. Is that because they're ashamed of their position? Is it because they're secretly racist? Or is it because, contrary to what Adam Hills might think, it's probably in most polite society in Australia a lot easier to be on the yes side than the no side? Who is likelier to get a brick through their window or have the front of their house spray-painted with offensive graffiti? Someone who puts a yes banner up or someone who puts a no banner up? If all the hate were coming from these terrible racists in the no camp against these innocent victims who are simply for justice, wouldn't you see more no posters? I mean, at least one or two? So maybe let's take a breath and step off our high horses and stop virtue signaling to each other about how everyone's being so divisive. I can't believe the slurs that I'm receiving, but I'm going to keep on fighting anyway, because I believe in what is right. These are complicated issues. They're important issues. They have to do with constitutional law, not your feelings, Mr. Hills. So let's just start by giving some context. In 2008, the federal government established a framework called Closing the Gap, which was a national effort to address Indigenous disadvantage, basically close the gap between the outcomes for Indigenous Australians and for non-Indigenous Australians. Ten years later, uh, they did a snapshot to see how well we're doing, and some of these statistics will just give you an understanding of the disparities that we're talking about. So let's look at Year 12 attainment, in other words, graduating high school all the way through. Uh, only about two-thirds of Indigenous Australians aged 20 to 24 have graduated high school in 2018 to 19. Two-thirds. Employment, the Indigenous employment rate is less than 50% in 2018 compared to 75% for non-Indigenous Australians. On the metric of life expectancy, life expectancy at birth for Indigenous males is almost nine years less than non-Indigenous males. For females, almost eight years less than non-Indigenous females. That's from 2015 to 2017. Uh, child mortality. The Indigenous child mortality rate is twice the rate of non-Indigenous children. In early childhood education, the proportion of uh, Indigenous four-year-olds who are enrolled in you know, preschool 
is 86% versus 91% for non-Indigenous children. In terms of school attendance, uh, the majority of Indigenous students only attended school for an average of just over four days a week in 2019, and school attendance rates haven't improved over the past five years for Indigenous children at all. Uh, That's speaking from the perspective of 2019. And in literacy and numeracy, uh, in 2018, about one in four to one in five Indigenous students are below the national minimum standards in numeracy and literacy. So along a bunch of metrics, something's not working. And the feeling has been from Indigenous leaders that having a forum in which leaders can gather, debate, and offer solutions to Parliament is going to be better than the current ad hoc system, which sort of swings from policy to policy as Australian governments get elected in and out of power. Let's go all the way back to 1788, when this landmass was invaded or settled, depending on what term you want to use. There's an uncomfortable truth that has to be acknowledged which is that there was a kind of irreconcilable clash that was always going to happen between the imperial world that was being driven by the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and the expansionist ideologies of empire and deeply traditional societies. First Nations Australians are the oldest continuous civilization on the planet. They'd been here for over 60,000 years. The British Empire at the time was the most technologically sophisticated civilization on the planet. The First Nations people and the Torres Strait Islanders at the time, if you look through the prism of a kind of imperial scientific revolution, technological progress lens, were pre-Bronze Age. Now, I'm not saying that as a slight. I'm not saying that to demean the achievements of that civilization in existing on a landmass this harsh for tens of thousands of years. But putting on the glasses of a European explorer and thinking about history in what is now considered to be a fairly old-fashioned way where you progress from this to this to this to this, Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, and so on. First Nations Australians were not using metals. They weren't, you know, smelting things. They weren't using coal. They weren't using agriculture. They didn't have built structures. They had societies that were sophisticated in their own ways, that endured far longer than we've been able to prove our societies to endure so far. And none of this is a justification for colonization and genocide. But it is a recognition that we're starting from a baseline of fundamentally incompatible civilizations. One, a highly technologically sophisticated expansionist empire, and the other, a deeply traditional civilization, or rather set of civilizations really, because there were so many across this massive land mass, with a deep connection to the land, but no way of incorporating European ideas about progress and technology 
into the worldview of the people who were on this landmass for tens of thousands of years. So you get off to the races with a very tricky situation. There are horrendous examples of genocide. There are centuries of dispossession. It was only in 1967 that First Nations Australians were even counted in the census and regarded as citizens, as humans, essentially. There were decades in which the enlightened notion of their white overlords was to literally steal the children away from First Nations families and house them in nice, proper families with white people in order to essentially ethnically cleanse First Nations people and breed them out of the country. Because, of course, we all know that they couldn't possibly be responsible for the proper upbringing of their own children. And if you have children, or if you have a parent, all of us do, just imagine what that's like for officers of the state to come to your door and just take your kids, never to be heard from again. And this is not ancient history. This is not 1788. This is well within the living memory of many First Nations people today. So fast forward to 2023. The sense I get from James, who asks me that question, and from many people who are frustrated with the current conversation around First Nations issues, is a sense that we're being expected to bear this guilt for things that we didn't do. And we're being expected, I think, the claim goes, to claim that all the problems that face Indigenous Australians are a direct consequence of racism. And you'll sometimes hear people say, well, what about domestic violence in Indigenous communities? What about alcoholism in Indigenous communities? What about the breakdown of the family in Indigenous communities? What about deadbeat dads who abandon their wives and their kids in Indigenous communities? What about the higher rates of crime from Indigenous young people. I invite you to consider that that whole question is a bit of a distraction. Because those things will only be improved if the majority of First Nations leaders who are not perpetrators of domestic violence or alcoholism or family breakdown or crime, and who have no time for such things and want to solve them, are empowered to act. And the argument for The Voice is, those people don't currently have a useful forum in which to act. Hence, a voice to Parliament. Nobody alive today is guilty of what happened in the past, but we are beneficiaries of it. That's, tr that's just a fact. Life is easier for non-Indigenous Australians than it is for Indigenous Australians if you hold all other metrics equal, as we've just heard from those statistics in the Closing the Gap report. So let's assume that probably the vast majority of Australians who are basically not overt racist, they don't think white people are superior to First Nations people, are on board with the idea that something needs to change and that more needs to be done on the ground to help the conditions of Indigenous Australians. 
that leaves us with a set of criticisms of the this idea of a body to parliament, a voice to parliament, and constitutional recognition. It leaves it with a set of other criticisms about whether it's the best way to achieve an improvement in those metrics. Let's just take a few of those criticisms, the main ones, one by one. One is that this whole proposal is anti-democratic, that whatever problems First Nations people face, it's wrong to elevate them on the basis of their race. We're supposed to be an egalitarian society. Everyone is supposed to be equal. We're supposed to aspire towards a level playing field. It gives them too much say. The counterpoint to that is that the body would not be binding in its decisions. It can't hold Parliament to account. It's advisory. Parliament is free to ignore it. Parliament is free to cut its funding. Parliament is free to reduce the number of people who sit in this body. We, the people of Australia, through Parliament, have total freedom in perpetuity to do whatever we want to this body except for abolish it because it would be in the Constitution. Now, if you know me, you know that I oppose the cleaving up of society into a bunch of warring tribal factions all scrabbling for some larger share of a finite pie. I think that mindset has given us the worst examples of human suffering and that the vision of Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Mandela is one of universalism, of comity between races, of equality. But you do have to acknowledge if you don't want to breach that principle in the construction of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, you do have to acknowledge that there needs to be some alternative mechanism for redressing these very, very stubborn wrongs. Or you have to say that those wrongs aren't worth, that the price you would pay to redress those wrongs through this mechanism is too high, too unegalitarian. Another criticism is that the whole proposal is a bit too vague. We're being asked to vote on whether or not we want to establish a body. We don't know how many people are going to be on the body. We don't know how they're going to be chosen. We don't know what they're going to be paid. All of that is valid but it's a bit of a catch-22. If the government came out of the gate and said, this is exactly what the body is going to look like, this is how many people, this is how they're going to be selected, this is what they're going to be paid, then we would now be all down in the weeds, having squabbles and bickering little arguments about why this person, you know, why we're paying them this much or that much. So if you give too much detail, then you get bogged down. If you give too little detail, you get criticised for giving too little detail. We'll sort it out is sort of the answer of the advocates of the voice. Presumably these people on this body, there's not going to be a million of them and they're not going to be earning a million dollars a year and there's not going to be one of them earning one dollar a year. There's going to be something in between those two. And that will be changeable by every successive government. So the decisions are not binding, which undermines the critique that it's an anti-democratic institution. It is perhaps vague, but flexible as a result. 
you wouldn't want to write into the Constitution exactly what it's going to look like and then never be able to change it. And that brings us to a final criticism, which is why do this with a constitutional change? Why not just legislate this in Parliament so that if it doesn't work, you can always undo it. If it becomes a corrupt and unrepresentative body, you can abolish it. Well, the advocates of The Voice say that's precisely why, because you don't want governments to have the option of abolishing it. They can reform it. They can fire everyone in it. They can change the number of people. They can ignore it. They can just refuse to take its advice. They're not obligated to do so. But the idea of putting it into the Constitution is so that it can't be scrapped, so that we as a people have to make it work somehow. The last criticism is one I hear, interestingly, from Australia's migrant communities, which goes along the lines of, I thought we were a melting pot. I thought that we were a place where you can come from anywhere around the world and you'll be treated equally. You know, what do I, as, for example, uh, a first-generation Chinese shopkeeper or you know, a Korean corner store owner or an Iranian engineer, why do I only get the normal democratic process, but there's this one group of people who gets this special voice beyond the democratic process? First Nations people can already vote. First Nations people can already run for parliament and get elected, as indeed they do. Why do they have to have this special body? That's an argument that, if any, is going to doom the referendum, I think, is the likeliest too. I haven't heard a great argument against it, except to say, sure, it is somewhat anti-egalitarian, and that is the price that we have to pay for our failure over the past 200 plus years to figure out how to truly include First Nations Australians in the achievement of the Australian dream. There is this one community that on so many metrics is falling behind. And unless you believe that they're genetically inferior or uniquely prone to crime, to violence, to alcoholism, to family dysfunction, then you have to concede that something about the way that we've set everything up has been pernicious to them. You don't have to bear guilt. You don't have to accept accusations that you're racist. But for 60,000 years, they didn't suffer from these setbacks. And now they do. Sure, life before the arrival of Europeans was not a golden age of pleasure and plenty, as some rose-tinted glasses First Nations activists might have you believe, where there was no crime and no violence. As I said at the start, this was a hyper-civilizational clash between the most advanced civilization in the world and one that, according to the crude metrics of progress, didn't have any of the yardsticks of modern sophisticated, developed civilization according to the European outlook. And so there is that clash. There was not sophisticated scientific research. There were no vaccines. There was no surgery. There was no modern justice system. But none of that is an excuse for the failure of this country 
to address a systematic uh, falling behind of the people who've been here for 60,000 years. Now, I'm not saying that the voice to parliament is the right way to solve these problems. I'm saying that quibbling over the details of this particular body, of how many people it'll have, of what it'll cost, of why it should go into the constitution instead of be legislated, of whether it's anti-democratic, of whether or not people alive today should be guilty for what happened in the past, of whether or not all problems that ail First Nations Australians are caused by the white man. All of those questions are a distraction from the deeper question, which really to me is, is the status quo acceptable? Is the status quo acceptable? If it's not, let's talk about another plausible forum in which a level playing field might be achieved. And if, you're, if you concede that the status quo is unacceptable and you do not have another forum in which a level playing field can be achieved, then I don't see how you have a coherent argument against the voice. Again, this is not a perfect solution. What is? I'm not saying I'm going to vote yes and I'm not saying I'm going to vote no. I'm trying to address and disentangle some of the concerns that people have, some of the misconceptions that people have, and take the heat and posturing out of this issue so that you can make a reasoned and informed choice. You do not have to blame every woe of Indigenous Australians onto the shoulders of the white man to believe that the status quo is broken, something needs to change, and here is an opportunity to try something out. So I hope that's somewhat useful in articulating my thinking about the position we find ourselves in. Again, nothing I've said should be interpreted as being a partisan political position one way or another. I've tried to hew to the facts. I've tried not to engage in Adam Hill's style posturing about hostility. And the last thing I would say is I invite you to do the same. Like, don't judge the other side, no matter how passionate you are. I got a text message on my radio show from a listener who said that she is systematically unfriending everybody on Facebook who is intending to vote no, or who is criticizing any of her yes posts. That way lies civil war. That way lies barbarism. I mean, you know, if you oppose the cleaving up of society into tribes. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And however much you might object to the racialization of political and cultural solutions in the formation of a, a body to represent a particular set of communities, you would also have to object to equally or perhaps more tribalistic reaction to that proposal, whether in favour of it or against it, by claiming that anyone who doesn't agree with your particular solution is so beyond the pale that you don't want to see what they have to say about anything else on social media. You don't want to see photos of their grandchildren because they're just that wrong. 
quit it with the virtue signaling, quit it with the posturing, quit it with the demonizing of the other side. We're all Australians. Let's come together. Let's figure this out. You can vote no. You can vote yes. Either way, God bless. I'll speak to you next week.